0: Now, as we come into chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, what we're kind of coming off of for uh, for those of you who haven't been here um, or who aren't caught up yet, there in, chapter 13 is essentially the beginning of a battle. It's the beginning of a battle, and this is Saul's first battle. Saul, who has been recently anointed king over Israel uh, by Samuel, uh, he has been anointed king over Israel, and this anointing and this uh, king has come about at the request of the people it's come about because the the people of Israel said you know we want to have a king that is just like all the other nations we want to have a king that we can trot out you know into battle and he can fight on our behalf he can execute judgment over us they desired this king And what we saw last week as we looked at Samuel's farewell address, and really what we see is it's really a rebuke, is that he says, you know, the Lord has heard you and he's given you the king that you wanted. He's given you what you've asked for. But he reminds them all along that it's the Lord who is their king. And it's the Lord who has said all along that he would protect them. He would be the one to provide for them. He would be the one to go out into battle with them and for them we saw earlier uh, not only here but in the in the previous chapters there's two other instances where it's the lord who fights on behalf of israel it's the lord who goes out into battle and takes care of them who meets their needs who provides for them but samuel this great prophet in chapter 12 reminds them of the many cycles in their lives where they have seen the lord deliver them they have recognized that but yet in their hearts they've decided to stray. They've decided to go their own way. And what we said last week was that when this happens, this is often born out of fear. Fear is the thing that keeps us from surrendering fully to the Lord because we're afraid about what he would do with our lives if we entrusted him fully. We are afraid about where he will take us or we're afraid that maybe he won't keep his word. He said he would protect us and provide for us. He said that he would meet all of our needs. But yet, we have something that we think, you know, I've got to take care of myself. And what that is, it's a, it's a fundamental distrust of God's character, of his faithfulness. But if anything, if Israel knows anything, is that they know that God has a perfect record all throughout their history. From the very beginning, he has always done what he said he would do. He has always taken care of them. And so there's no evidence that they would have to not trust the Lord. But yet it's this selfishness. It's this desire that they have to go their own way, to be their own captains, to be their own masters, to be their own kings that prevents them from following the Lord. And, and, and I think as we, as we hear these things, it's easy for us to make that comparison that this is often how we live, how we move through life. Our decisions are not so much based upon, you know, how are we following the Lord a lot of times, but more frequently they're based on the fact that uh, this seems like the best opportunity that we've decided upon, that we want, that we want to chase after, that we think will protect us or provide for us or meet our needs. But what we've said all along and since the very beginning of the church is that we want to go and be a part of and be involved with all the things that God is doing. It's not enough to just have good ideas or to have a good plan. You need God's plan. A good plan, if it's not God's plan, is a bad plan. A hundred percent of the time, we want to discover what he's doing and join him in what he's doing. Because as we have confessed, and as we've seen in the text, that he is the king. He is the author of life. He is the finisher of the faith. And so if he's the one who's writing the story, he must be near to the author. You're not writing your own story here. You have to understand where is he taking me? What is he doing in my life? How is he leading? And we have said again and again, Our desire as his church is to follow him where he goes, to discover what he's doing and join him in this. And we have uh, spoken about this as the idea or the mission of our church is a a group of people in Berkeley who are responding to Jesus We're responding to him. We are not the initiators. We're not the ones who are saying, well, here, I've got this idea. We are finding out what he's doing, and then we are responding to him. We are joining him in his work. And here we find that now they go out into their first battle and we see a glimpse of what it is for the people of Israel and the king of Israel to go their own way. They see, they've heard this rebuke from Samuel, they've been given this warning. The very last words of chapter 12 from Samuel are this. In verse 24, he tells Samuel, the king, he tells the people, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Straightforward. For consider what great things he has done for you. It's those great things in the past that the evidence of God's faithfulness in the past that allows them to be obedient in the future. They have a foundation from which, uh, on which to stand. They can see that he has been faithful again and again. And he will continue to be faithful to his word. But he does tell them, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the last words that we have here in chapter 12 from Samuel. And now we come to our text this morning and we read this Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Now, let's just stop there for a moment because depending upon what translation you read, this could be a little bit confusing because mine says that Saul lived for one year. Like, what does that mean? Does he live for one year as king? Like, is he like a one-year-old baby? that Like, he's ruling, like, what's happening here? What's going on? Your version may say Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. There's some other versions that say, like, oh, like, he, he, he was 40 years old, and he reigned, like, there's all this sort of confusion here. And when you look at some of the original texts and the original manuscripts, there's uh, there's some missing kind of portions there where it's, like, a little bit smudged. And so, uh, when you look at it, a, a lot of um, translators will kind of just put, like, a... a question mark there as to like this is a blank spot like we don't really know how old he was here Uh, and and there are some who think like who are making the argument that like yeah obviously they came up with the fact that he's 30 years old so they're kind of saying like okay this is based upon what we the fragment of this little piece and what it says here's what we think Uh, but beyond that there are other scholars who have just kind of like deduced the timeline by looking at some of the other events surrounding Saul's life and trying to work backwards. Basically, the most likely you know situation here is that there's these letters were just dropped out, and that's why in mine it says he's a baby king, and in yours it might say he's 30. And he reigns for 42 years. Some people say he's reigned for two years up until this point. I don't know what yours says, but the point is this. He's the king, and he's been the king for a little bit. So much so that we find that... Uh, as we jump down to, chapter, to verse 3, we find that Jonathan, who is Saul's son, is now a captain in the army. So Saul's been reigning for some time. He's, been, uh, he's had a kid for some time, so much so that his, his kid's in battle with him. Okay, that's what you need to know. Now, as we come to verse 2, we read that Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were, were with Saul in Mishmash, and the, the hill country of Bethel. I know you don't say it like that, but it just sounds so much more fun, right? Mishmash is way better than like having those hard, like, mish. Like, uh, like I don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Mishmash, it's just way more fun. Okay, we're going to go with it. Your excuse for all your mispronunciations from here on forward. It, it, just go with it, it's fun. Two thousand were with Saul and Mishmash in the hill country of Bethel, and and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So we have now for the first time in Israel's history, the formation of a professional army. This isn't a bunch of farmers now who previously was what made up like Israel's militia. A bunch of like random people were like, we got to go out to war. And then, you know, like someone's grabbing like the stick that they would use to like hit their ox with. They're like, I guess I'm going to fight with this. Like here we have a proper army being formed. Right now we got about 3,000 men. 2,000 go with Saul Uh, um, here to Mishmash. Then we got Jonathan, who takes his thousand, two captains, two locations. Now we read verse 3. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it. Said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and all the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Now, we find here that as we get ready for the first battle with Saul as king, uh, the first attack happens through his son. Jonathan. He goes out and he sees these this Philistine encampment at the city called Geba, which is nearby. They kind of had this little uh, outpost there, not a full fortress, but a little outpost. And he said, You know, I can probably take those guys, me and my thousand men. We can probably overthrow this little outpost, no problem. And so he goes out, he defeats them with his men. And the result is he comes back and reports about it. And Saul, he gathers everybody together and he says, Let the Hebrews hear. All right, he's like, let everybody know, like we got a victory. What's up here? And all Israel heard it. Said, what did they hear it said? That Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. All right. So right out the gate, he's like, his son did some good work, and now he's like claiming the victory. He's like, oh, I want everybody to know. Let everybody know that like we went out there and we kicked butt. Like I I led this battle. Immediately he's. Turning, as we said, to be a selfish king. He wants to be seen and portrayed to the people as a mighty warrior, a military leader, a strong leader. And what Saul is doing here is he's beginning to protect his reputation. He's beginning to form an identity that would be accepted in the eyes of the people. He's beginning to tell this tale that here's how you ought to understand me, here's how you ought to re- interact with me. I'm your military king. I'm your champion. Look at this victory that I've had. He takes credit for Jonathan's attack, straight up. Obviously, this reveals this uh, identity issue within Saul. He wants the credit. He wants the praise. Now, the result of this attack is that Israel, we're told, had become a stench to the Philistines. Like before, the Philistines were kind of ignoring them. They were like, eh. but all of a sudden you're like, what is that? That's awful. What is that? Now, I don't have a very sensitive nose, so it does not really like, this doesn't mean much to me. But my wife has like a very sensitive nose. So it could be like 4 a.m. and she could be like, What is that? I'm like, what? I will think like someone's breaking in. She's like, something smells really bad. I'm like, what is it? I don't know, you gotta find it. I'm like, why don't we just go to sleep and ignore it? I can't, I can't like she'll try. Nope, won't work. The stench will become so great, even in just just this little bit, that it disturbs the peace. It disturbs. The, the situation and provokes to action. And all of a sudden, it's 4 a.m. and I'm like ripping off, like, you know, looking under the bed and crawling under there. Like, what is this? Is this like, 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 did someone leave out like a glass of milk that's spoiled? Is there like a rat that died? Like, what's happening? You know, I'm just trying to track down, like, what is this thing? Is there something happening? I don't know. Like, trying to figure it out. Here, this becomes the catalyst for the Philistines to be like, okay, like we were ignoring you guys before, but now we got to like deal with this. Come over there, you poke the bear. And so this incites the Philistines to prepare for like an all-out war. They're super mad about this. And so they gather a massive army determined to crush this smaller uh, Israelite army. Look at verse 7. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel thirty thousand chariots, and six thousand horsemen, and troops like the sea, or like, like the sand on the seashore, in multitude. They came up and encamped at Mishmash to the east of Beth Aven, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for they people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves, in holes, and in rocks, and in tombs, and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So the result of this little battle that they have is that the Philistines are like, no, like I don't got time for this. We're gonna crush these fools. They gather together thirty thousand chariots, six thousand horsemen. Like we could have just been fine with thirty thousand chariots, like right, like like one thousand against like thirty thousand. Like <laughs> we're good. We get what's happening like but no you're going to roll that with 30,000 chariots and then 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude like come on now come on like this is overkill you don't need this but what they're trying to do here is to make a point if you come against us we will crush you if you think that you're going to be this this little thorn in our side you think you're going to be able to push back we are going to crush you. We're going to destroy you. They're seeking to put them in a place of oppression again. And the result here, as they see this great army amassing, as they see these people opposing them, we find in verse 6 that the people hid themselves. They hid themselves. They weren't ready to fight. They didn't want to fight. They were talking a big talk. Oh, we got like our, our, our king. Our king, he went out to battle for us. The king that we wanted, like all the other nations, like we heard it said that he's the guy who went out to battle for us. He's supposed to do what he did. That was his job. But now, they don't trust it. They're not saying, well, our king will go out to battle for us again. Instead, when, the, when this suffering comes, when this difficulty comes, when the hardship comes, they act in fear. They act in fear, and they hide themselves. It's not surprising that many of them, like, deserted, right? They're, they see what's happening. They see what's about to happen. They see that, like, we're about to die. They see that their state, their situation that they're in, from being confident, like, oh, yeah, we're good, but when reality dawns upon them, when they realize that their state has changed, oh shoot, we're in trouble. When they realize, when they see for the first time with clear eyes, what they are up against, they hide themselves. They're in fear. So much so, some of the Hebrews cross the fords of the Jordan. They like leave the area completely. But Saul, he's still at Gilgal. And all the people followed him trembling. They have the same attitude as Saul has. Saul's not confident either. He's one who acts in fear. He's one who's selfish. We find verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. So Samuel's there, or excuse me, Saul's there. It's getting intense. He sees the people starting to leave, scattering. Sam, uh, Saul, or excuse me, yeah, Samuel has not yet arrived at his promised time, the time appointed. And so he says, you know, I'm going to take. Take matters into my own hands here. Samuel's not here to do the work. He's not here to to see things through. I'll do it. I'm going to handle this. And so he says, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, these offerings were to be kind of made before battle. This burnt offering specifically was kind of the idea was atoning for the sins of the people before they went out into battle. And so, this individual would be acting as a mediator between God and man. This was the job, of course, of the priest. And so, Saul, he acts sinfully. He acts sinfully in two ways. First, he disobeys, he just straight up disobeys Samuel's instructions. His job was just to wait for Samuel to arrive. Like all your like you just stand there, you just wait. That's it. It's your job. Do your job. Wait. But yet he he doesn't wait. He doesn't wait. We find him then in his second sin of performing priestly duties. Performing priestly duties. Saul is the king. He's not a priest. And only priests were to offer sacrifices. Stated explicitly. Saul is not qualified to even make this offering. He's not even a member of the tribe of Levi. Like he's not even, he's not, not only is he not a priest, he's not even in the right family to take this up. And so what happens here is that he ignores God's law as a member of the covenant. He ignores God's law as the king and he ignores God's law in, in acting in this priestly role And the result of this is that he shows that he's someone who is unfit to lead Israel. Because what we saw in chapter 12 was this. Samuel then gathering with the people and setting the structure of the kingdom in place. Here's how the king is supposed to relate to the people. The king is supposed to relate to the people on the basis of how God relates to the king. The true king gives the the human king instructions, and the human king follows God's instruction. You don't make your own rules, you don't go your own way. But yet, here, this is the second time now where Samuel, or excuse me, where Saul has decided to take up another identity. Before, he wanted to be perceived as a military leader, and so he's like, hey, let everybody know that I'm the one who, like, I'm conquering these people. Now, Samuel's not around. He's like, hey, like, bring me the stuff. I will be the priest. You guys can know that I'm the one that you relate to. When you're in trouble, you, we're going to do this offering right here, and then I'm going to lead you out into battle. I will ha- handle this for you. Again, he's taking up another identity that does not belong to him. Verse 10, as soon as he finished the offering, or excuse me, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold... Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? What have you done? Now, Samuel confronts Saul. As he sees, as he sees, Saul uh, Saul sees Samuel coming, Look at, look at this kind of like thing that happens here. We find that Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Like for us, we're like, oh, okay, cool, like meet and greet. We'll have like a little like coffee hour, like between, like, it was like a cocktail hour, like mingle a little bit before we get down to business. That's not like what was happening here. When it says that he went to meet and greet him, uh, uh, the translation is actually like he went out to meet him and to bless him. Not only did he offer the sacrifices, but he's just like, oh yeah, like I'm the priest now, like I'm gonna give you like the priestly blessing too. Like he 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 thinks like this is fine. And Samuel sees him, he's like, like, why why are you like trying to operate in this way? Why are you trying to operate like a priest? Why are you trying to come out and bless me in a way that a priest would bring this blessing to somebody else? He he's not even really interested in hiding it. But as soon as this confrontation comes to a head, Things get get interesting because there's an opportunity to be had here. Samuel comes with these words and he says this. What have you done? What have you done? You ever hear those words? What have you done? Why did you do that? What were you thinking? I will tell you, those words are the turning point. When you hear those words, what have you done? Right? We've all seen, we've all seen every every like movie or TV show, every sitcom, that the, the episode could be ended in an instant if if the person who was being asked that question just said, Oh, oh, here's what I did, and they just repented and said it, and pow, the end of episode, oh okay, great. I forgive you we're done. (laughs) But nope, it's the lies and the blaming that lead to like these further complications that support the rest of the movie. It's the lies that support the continuing narrative. And what happens here is that Saul is being confronted. He's he's being asked, "What, what have you done? What have you done? And this is the perfect opportunity for Saul to come out in full confession and repentance and to say, here's what I've done. Here's what I did, and I repent. I shouldn't have done this. But instead, his response is defensive. It's fearful. He tries to convince Samuel that his reasons for doing this were justified, that they were important, and in fact that Samuel should be happy with him because of what he's done. Here's what he does. He gets straight into the blame game. He says this, Saul said, When I saw the people... Uh, were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Now, he gets into the blame game with basically what is a a threefold presentation here. First, he says, "Well, well, I did it. I did it. I did it because I saw that the people were scattering from me. Like, they were leaving. Like, it was the people's fault. The army was there. They were supposed to be following me, and they started to slip away, and the people were like, they were were losing confidence. Morale was low, and so I was like, hey, I got to do something. But what happened in that moment is that this, this king, who had just tried to convince everyone that he's this great military leader, is now being exposed he's being exposed everyone sees like like what's the plan he's like oh, our plan is just like wait around everyone can see that he's not this great military leader his life is being exposed his plan is being exposed and so he begins again to lead from fear he's afraid of the philistines He's afraid of the people leaving. His identity is wrapped up in the approval of these others. Of what they think about him. And so he's like, oh, i got, I got to do something to make them happy. I've got to respond to what they're, they're leaving, so i got to do something to show them, like, yeah, we, we're doing things. Then he turns from blaming the people now and shifts it to, to Samuel. He says, you, you didn't come within the days that were appointed. This is your fault. If you would have been here, if you would have been here, then like we wouldn't have this problem. But Saul was to wait for Samuel's arrival, so that he could explicitly uh, perform these sacrifices, and so that Samuel could give him instructions about the battle. He could give him directions from the Lord. He would provide God's guidance in this phase of life. But see, the way that Saul thought about this and the way that we often think about these things is this. We often think, well, you know, we're doing the good things. We're doing, like, the things that we're supposed to be doing. But we don't really understand the why. We don't understand the heart behind it. And so we're going through the motions of participating in the actions without knowing the purpose behind it. You see, Saul, he's like, well, we're going to do the sacrifices. He he doesn't even, the sacrifices are there to serve some purpose. But the reality is that you can't go into battle without hearing the word of the Lord. And this is what, this is what Samuel was to provide, the word of the Lord. Where are you going to go? How are you going to roll out your attack plan? How are you going to lead your people? If the Lord has not told you, then you're going in your own plan, your own strength, your own might. When we go around God's timing, when we, when we go around God's plan or God's commandments, we're really saying that his word and his promises, they're not good. Like, I see you got a plan. I'm just going to kind of go around that because it doesn't really seem like a great plan to me. So I'm going to set up my alternate plan. And maybe you should kind of get on board with what I'm doing. And Saul here, he's unwilling to wait for the word of the Lord. He doesn't want to wait. He was willing to perform this spiritual ritual, but he doesn't care about the heart, the motive, the value of the practice. And so he blames Samuel. Now, the third group that he blames here is the Philistines. He's like, and it's the Philistines' fault. Because they mustered together at Mishmash, and and I said, now the Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal. He's like, they were coming, and so like I, like it was their fault if they weren't coming over here to attack me, then I wouldn't have had to do this. This this is his attitude. Now this is also a, I think Samuel sees straight through this because. Gilgal was a place that was like a good distance off from where they were gathering. So there was kind of like not really a possibility that the Philistines were going to trek all the way over here to deal with them at Gilgal. That's why Samuel tells the people of Israel to assemble at Gilgal, because it's like this is a good distance, a safe place away. So kind of from just a logical strategic perspective, like this is just a really bad excuse. But beyond that, this stands in contrast to the previous battles where the Philistines were much closer at Mizpah. When, when they were gathered and they were collect, in collective repentance there and they tell Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us. Have the Lord intercede on our behalf. It's there in that moment that they do the right thing and Samuel does and the Lord delivers them. Here, the enemy is further away than he was then And they don't go through the proper motions of submitting themselves to the Lord. They don't. They act in their own strength again. And we get Saul's final excuse in verse 12. Now, or I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered The burnt offerings. Now, all these things stack up. And Saul says, and the real, one of the other real reasons why I did this was because all these things were against me and I had to act and I hadn't sought the favor of the Lord. But what this does is it just exposes Saul even further that he would think. That the favor of the Lord would come to him through disobedience. That the favor of the Lord would come to him and his people through sin. That the favor of the Lord would come to rest upon him. And that he would hear from the Lord about how they ought to live as God's people, how they ought to represent God in battle. He thought, he thought that this would come by prioritizing his own way. I mean, it really reveals it, the, the spiritual disconnect in Saul's heart. Now, Samuel, he doesn't put up with any of this. He's like, I'm not even going to go line by line on this. Like, cool story, bro. Does, like let's just get to it he says verse 13 Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly he's just like we're not even going to respond to all your dumb arguments like they're not they're not good you have done foolishly you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you so these two things come forth, you have done foolishly. Now, now, oftentimes, when we think about doing foolishly, we think about somebody who like, kind of made like a bad mistake. But as you look at the idea of people who are categorized as fools throughout the Bible, it's a much more serious charge. It means that you are somebody who is uh, spiritually disconnected, that you are somebody who has plotted your own way. If you look throughout the Psalms and Proverbs, this person is said to be far from the Lord, the fool, and so this isn't just like a, hey, like you're kind of like a foolish person. That was like a bad idea. It's, it's a charge that's saying like, you're far from the Lord. Like you're, you're not, you're not on track here. He says, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. What this is stating is that Saul doesn't even consider himself to be bound by the instructions that he just heard from Samuel in chapter 12. He's like, you just got instructions on how to live and you couldn't keep them. You couldn't keep them. One chapter. You couldn't, you couldn't keep it together for one chapter, right? He, he's going his own way already. Now the result, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded you to be a prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Saul receives this punishment for acting like a king from the other nations, exactly what Israel asked for. He wants to be a king like all the other nations. He did act like the king from all the other nations and disobeyed God's commands. And now the Lord says, I was going to establish your line forever. But because you did not keep this, we're not going to establish that line. The result is that your line will end. And the Lord has selected, he has chosen Another. He has sought out a man after his own heart, we are told. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So, what is being said there is that to be a man after the Lord's heart is to be one who keeps God's commands. Very similar to the words of Jesus when he said, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you belong to his family, do what he asks you to do. Obey him. This is what the Lord wants in each of us. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. He desires that we would be those who would pursue him. Passionate about him, knowing him, taking on his character. We would not be as In the mold of Saul, who would be operating out of fear. Who would be trying to create these various identities to please the people. But yet, Saul finds himself alone. Verse 15, And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. So Saul's got 600 guys left now. Everybody else is hidden or deserted, but Saul's now alone. Samuel is not even with him. It's one thing to have like a, a, a lesser number of people, but to also not have, have the spiritual direction now is the bigger problem. He doesn't have the spiritual direction. He's isolated himself. What he needed was Samuel's influence. But he has postured and put himself in such a position to say, I'm going to call the shots. I don't need you to tell me what God's doing. I already tried to stand in for you because you weren't there. I'm going to do it my way. And this is how we often get ourselves into trouble. The idea of my way. The idea of my way. Say, here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to accomplish. Here's how I want my life to go. But when we do that, when we build our own identities, when we cast those things, everyone sees through it. Everyone sees through it. You are exposed. It's made known before all. You see, Saul, his life and the way that he operates is very, very similar to the, to the trajectory that we find of Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Right? If you recall the story in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord has placed this tree in the garden. And he's told Adam, you can eat of any tree, but this one, this one The tree of knowledge of good and evil, that's the one, just don't eat that one. The rest of them, free reign, do whatever you want, enjoy. Enjoy the garden, enjoy the animals. But yet, we find that Adam, he disobeys the Lord. He partakes. He partakes of the fruit that the Lord has prohibited. You see, both Saul and Adam are, in a sense, the head of their respective uh, groups. Adam, the federal head of humanity, Saul, the king of Israel. And they both violate these commands that the Lord gives. Their responses are even the same. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, uh, in verse 8, we find Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord said to them, called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Adam does the same thing. He's like, it was the woman's fault, and you were the one who gave me her. Like, right away. He doesn't say, like, oh, yeah, I did that. He just says, uh, her fault and your fault. If you didn't do that thing, I wouldn't be in this situation. Right? And then we also have the third there, the enemy of God, Satan. But because of this, they're both unwilling to take responsibility for their actions. They're both unwilling to take responsibility for their actions. They make these excuses. They play the blame game. Because of this sin, Adam loses the opportunity for eternal life in the garden. Because of sin, Saul loses the opportunity for the continued... Enduring kingly rule of his household within the promised land. They both have these opportunities. They both act in sin. They both go their own way. They both play the blame game. And what do they do as a result of this sin? They were exposed. They are exposed. Genesis 3. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Because they decided that they wanted to rule. They wanted to be the king. They wanted to go their own way. And so they're exposed and they hide. They're fearful. They hear the sound. Verse 10 I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. They were exposed and then afraid. They were fearful because they were under the wrath of God. All of a sudden, the words that were said to Adam start to ring true in their minds. For in the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. All of a sudden, it's like they see with new light. They see with new eyes that they have put themselves in a position where now they have gone from being in relationship with God and being able to come to him openly and freely and walk with him and have communion with him to now separated from God. Now at a distance because of their sin, because of their desire to have their own way, their own plan. And as a result, they're fearful, exposed, naked, and hiding fearful, exposed, naked, and hiding. You see, Saul disobeys Samuel, of course. But in reality, he sins against the true king. This isn't just about disobeying Samuel. He has an opportunity to repent and find his identity in the covenant. But instead, he goes his own way and he acts in fear. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to act in fear. And we often do the same thing. So often we do the same thing. We fail to find our identity in the true king. It's because we want to rule as king over our own lives. And so we who are a people who are exposed, who are under the wrath of God, who are naked and ashamed, we find that we are in the the constant place of wanting to hide ourselves. We're in the constant place of wanting to hide ourselves. And you can do that. You can do that. I'll tell you how it works out. If you you look briefly at Revelation chapter 6, you get a little glimpse here. In Revelation 6:15, we find that the here, here it is the kings of the earth, the kings of the earth, and the great ones right. So here's some levels of hierarchy here, and the generals and the rich and powerful, and everyone, slave and free. What do they do? They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This group of people who thought they were in charge, who thought they wanted to go their own way, who had their own plans, was like, I'm going to do it my way. These are the people who are now hiding because they have been exposed. They've been exposed. They are naked and ashamed. They are the ones that are hiding and they're fleeing from the wrath of the lamb. It's an interesting it's an interesting description here because we don't typically see lambs that are very wrathful, right? Like that doesn't that seems like kind of a little bit of a like a, a, a paradox there. Right? It's a weird juxtaposition. Wrathful lamb. That's like a little bit strange. Like typically, like those are like nice and snuggly and you know innocent. But there are, there are these uh, in in the totality of who this lamb is. We find this declared in the gospels as as. John the Baptist declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the declaration that he makes upon seeing Jesus. Here is the Lamb. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so the Lamb is connected forever with wrath. Because at the cross... We find that it's Jesus who goes willingly obediently living a perfect life on our behalf. He goes there undeserving of any wrath of any punishment but yet knows that we need him to go there because we are a people who are naked we are ashamed we are a people who are deserving of that wrath. And so as you look as you look at the cross As you see Christ nailed to the tree, he is described as being separated from God, as bearing the sin of the world. He cannot hide. And he is there hanging naked and exposed. Naked and exposed. For all to see For all to see the pain and suffering that should have belonged to us. But he was undeserving, completely undeserving. It's there that the Lamb interacts with the wrath of God, absorbing the payment for our sin. And so the opportunity then for the people of God is then do you look to the Lamb and you respond to the Lamb and trust in the Lamb who has absorbed the wrath of God or, or is it your choice that I'm going to take my own chances, I'm going to go my own way and I'm going to deal with the wrath of God on my own. If you want to go your own way, then you're going to be the one hiding, still subject to the wrath of God but now judgment belongs To the lamb. And so the lamb makes both the invitation that says, Come and find your identity in me. Come be with me. Come be a part of my family. And the lamb also says, Right now you're subject to judgment. You're already in trouble. Come. I've already done the work. I've completed it. I'm inviting you in. Jesus was undeserving it's at the cross that there's a great substitution that's made. And so it's no wonder that the next time we see there, as you turn the page from from chapter 6 of Revelation to chapter 7, you see that there is a new group of people who come under the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we see the vision of John. He says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number. Right? This is larger than the enemies of the Philistines. This is greater than 30,000 chariots and, and the, the thousands of foot soldiers that are more numerous than the sands of the sea. Behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from every tribe and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes not naked not exposed clothed in white robes you see because what happens at the cross is that Jesus takes off his purity and he hands it to those who would trust in him for salvation he says you need this you need this I will be naked and ashamed I will be exposed I will experience that punishment which should have been given to you You be clothed in my righteousness. Be clothed in these white robes. These people are clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. As we've said in the past, this is a symbol of freedom and crying out with a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. To the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And so it is that you can go your own way. You can go the way of King Saul. You can make your own path. You can be one who is hiding, who is naked, who is ashamed, who constantly is creating identities, that are exposed and other people see that you're a fake and you're a fraud and then you have to try to create a new one to prove them wrong. Or you can trust in Christ for salvation. You can find your identity in him. You can rest in what he has already provided and you can take on the robes that he has given to you and join in with the chorus of heavenly realm. The choice is yours. I know what I'm choosing. I know what I'm choosing. I'm going to choose it every day because, as we said, He never fails. His record is perfect. And so, sometimes you might not feel like mm, I don't know if I can do it today. Don't slip. Don't be like the children of Israel here who are just like trying to go their own way. His record's perfect. You don't need another king. You don't need to be the king. Let the king be the king. Let's pray and we'll respond in worship. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness. We're thankful for your faithfulness to us. We're thankful that while we were your enemies, while we were sinners, dead in our trespasses, Lord, you rescued us, you gave your life so that we don't have to hide. But we can come boldly before the throne of grace so we can celebrate you, we can give you honor. And so, Lord, we want to respond and worship now and bring you glory. So, Lord, work in your church. We love you. Amen.